0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link
1: in the show description to support
0: now. The following podcast is a Vasilis Scarlias production.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Kennedy.
2: And I'm Vasilis.
1: We run Changemaker Z, a student-run initiative that aims to empower, educate, and connect Gen Zers interested in
2: entrepreneurship. We interview teenagers with impactful projects and create resources to help you change the world. If they can do it, so can you.
1: On this podcast, we discuss the logistics of creating different types of projects with Gen Zers who have already done it. We will leave our social media and website information in the description. everyone. I'm pretty sure that all these past days you have listened somewhere to the COP26 initials corresponding to one of the biggest environmental events for 2021. Today we're here with Guilin Fondel and JP Ariano to comment and talk about some of the most important subjects of the United Nations Climate Change Conference that took place in Glasgow between October 31st through November 12th. Before we start, we have some exciting news to share with you today. The Changemaker Z app is now released on the App Store in which you can find every section of the podcast and many more exciting features. It will be available on the Play Store soon. Now let's introduce this episode's guest. We'll be speaking with Gaylin Fondell.
0: Hi everyone, I'm Gaylin. I'm a science communication lead and content director at Climate Science.
3: And uh, hi folks, my name is JP, I use CM pronouns and uh, I'm also a uh, content Director at Climate Science. And we've uh, been keeping up to date with a lot of the stuff that's been going on in our COP recently.
1: Yes, they are two climate activists and science communication leads at Climate Science, an educational charity with a focus on climate solutions. We're so happy to have you guys here today. We're excited to talk um, about COP.
2: Kennedy, I love your enthusiasm. Thank you very much, both Ghislaine and JP, for being here so in our first meeting we had mentioned some guidelines that we want to cover in this episode and um, through this episode we will go through the climate finance the transportation and the energy transformation subjects that were also introduced on the cop 26 and um, tell us we we had discussed about climate finance but what exactly is it so when we talk about climate finance Essentially, we're talking about
0: the funding that goes towards um, mitigating and adapting to climate change. So when I mentioned the public and private sector, it's because we need funding from both the public sector, which would mean um, governments, for example, and the private sector, which would mean corporations and companies. Um, So over the last 12 years, we were expected to see $100 billion per year from the public sector going towards helping countries who cannot afford to um, mitigate and adapt to climate change and also um, shouldn't be bearing the burden of doing so. Um, And high-income countries essentially failed um, to provide the necessary funding. Um, And so at COP26, this was such a big uh, conversation because um, they had to reassess uh, the funding that they were going to provide towards these low- and middle-income countries um, and set out new goals for the future.
3: And we want to we want to clarify for for the audience that when we're talking about mitigation, uh, that essentially means reducing emissions, right? So that means uh, doing anything we can to actively reduce emissions. So that means installing solar panels. That means replanting forests. That means um, uh, decarbonizing industries like steel, automobiles, etc. And when we talk about adaptation, we talk about you know uh, being ready and prepared for the um, eventual effects that will come across from climate change. I mean, we're already seeing a lot of them, right? The floods in BC and India, uh, the famine in Madagascar, um, et cetera. Those are things that are happening now and are only going to get worse. So we have to be able to adapt to those challenges. Uh, and the reason that we put a lot of focus on high-income countries is that if you look at historic emissions, for example, um, of all of the emissions that have ever, ever been emitted by the human race... of them have come from the United States alone, for example. And we know, I think everybody listening here knows that 330 million people, the population of the United States, is not 25% of the population, right? Not even close. Um, And, you know, you see similar figures for countries in Europe, places like Australia, Canada, et cetera, um, that have emitted significantly more per capita in historical terms than a lot of low-income and developing uh, and low- and middle-income nations. Uh, and that is why a lot of the burden should be placed on these high-income nations that are the main uh, uh, um, uh, causers of these effects, um, but are not feeling most of the effects themselves. Besides, from maybe like Australia and southern U.S., uh, most of Europe will be fairly okay. Um, obviously, nowhere is going to be okay, but they're not going to face the worst impacts that we're going to see. In, for example, Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, so- uh, South America, places where they haven't emitted a lot, and they're going to face the worst consequences. So, if you do hear a lot of the blame being not blame, but a lot of the responsibility being put on high inclinations. that is that is why. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and and you know, it's not just a matter of where they're located, and and you know, whether they're going to be affected, but it's, um, so for example, when we talk about the adaptive capacity of a country, it's how well they can adapt to climate change, right? So it's not just, you know, how the exposure is measured, um, as a result of their ability to pay for adaptation measures. Um, you know, so, uh, cities, for example, that are located on coastlines in high income countries are less likely to be exposed than cities that are looking on coastlines in low- and middle-income countries, right? So that's where all, you know, having to pay for these things comes in. And part of that is the inequality side of it, and and that, you know, they don't deserve to have to pay for these um, repercussions of the actions of high-income countries. Um, But on top of that, you know, a lot of these countries are in debt. and A lot of these countries just flat-out cannot pay for this, and it would take such a blow to their economies. Um, to have to do so so it's it's a really 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 critical part of of talking about climate change is how to pay for it
3: and and the most important fact is that these rich countries got rich because they emitted so much because they took labor they took energy they took capital they took land and resources from these low-income and middle-income countries right essentially leaving dirt leaving them with dirt with almost nothing nothing so that Exactly. Now they just they just can't afford it. They just don't have the resources nor the nor nor the capital to be able to mitigate and adapt in necessary ways.
2: May I ask which is the position of China in this whole situation?
0: Yeah. So, um, in terms of climate finance, I'm not entirely well versed on how much funding um, China is giving, but it's an interesting situation because within China, the disparity between the lower class and the higher class um, is enormous. Um, you know, so, so it's important to look at both the funding within the country and outside of it. Um, right now, China is the first most polluting country in the world. Um, historically, it is not. Um, but even without those historical emissions, it still carries um, some sort of the responsibility um, towards providing uh, funding. Um, towards climate
3: finance. Right. And at, and at the same time, so, so sorry, did I get that right? You mentioned that, um, yes, they were, they're leading in solar panels, but because of so much smog and pollution, they're not as efficient. So did I catch that right? Or, right. That's actually extremely interesting. Mm-hmm. I actually hadn't heard about that before. Because it can get quite complicated, right? When a lot of people see countries like China and India and being like, well, they have billions of people, right? They're emitting so, so much, right? When you look at a per capita basis, it's not the case, right? It's nowhere near the case to the cases that to the people in, for example, North America or Europe. Um, And when you look at the expansion of, you know, renewable energy and things like that, they're actually expanding at a much faster rate than they are, obviously because they need a lot more power uh, than than some of the nations um, uh, that we've talked about before in Europe or North America. However, nobody's going away scot-free. It's everybody's fault, right? It's not. It's not. It's, we're not pointing fingers, and we're not. And we're not. Want, we don't want to blame anybody. We just want to highlight the inequality and the and 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 the climate justice of it all. To Adequately proportion responsibility, um, but China still has a role to play. The fact that they don't want to that they don't want to um, shut down their power, their stop funding coal power plants within their nation uh, is problematic. It's extremely problematic, and if we don't manage to convince China to stop doing that within before 2030, we may not very well have a shot at 1.5. To be totally frank, because China produces so much of their energy with coal. Um, but at the same time you also have to put yourself in the in the foots uh, in, in the shoes of um, Chinese politicians for example right like what do they want well they want their people to prosper they want their people to afford you know to be to live the lives that the Europeans are living that the North Americans are living right they just want the best for their people Um and how do they do that as cheap and efficiently as possible? Right. Well, it's with coal. It's with, you know, dirty uh, fossil gas, etc. Doesn't mean it doesn't mean I'm not justifying what they're doing. Right. But when you put yourself in, their, in in their shoes. Right. Obviously, it makes sense for everybody to be doing what they are. What they don't think about is the longer term picture. Right. It's like, OK, well, this is good for my citizens now but it might not be good for them 20, 30, 50, 70 years down the line, right? You know, we might be, and it's it's very hard for human minds to kind of focus on such long-term things because we don't tend to be around for very long. Um, And, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, it'll be their problem, it won't be mine, uh, is a lot of the mentality that we see. Uh, But, no, you're totally right. There needs to be more political will from everybody, including China, most definitely China, because, I mean, if, for example, if you get the EU, US, and China to be in a pact of, like, A carbon market or carbon, uh, you know, uh, legally binding carbon reductions, then almost everybody will have to follow suit because they make almost everything, you know?
1: Basically, like, gone are the days where you can just sit back and be like, oh, I, you know, this is not in my future. I don't have to worry about this. You said 2030, I'll be what, like 25 or something like that. And like, also, I heard you mentioning the 1.5. When I was researching um, COP, well, first of all, can we just like kind of clarify what COP26 is yeah. and also like what what's so important about the
0: 1.5? Yeah. So, um, so COP26 is the conference of parties. And, and so this is something that um, happens once a year. This is really just the place for all of the uh, world leaders um, for, you know, um, but leaders within the public and both the private sector. Um, for activists to come together um, and to decide on what future pledges are going to look like um, and kind of map out the course for Mm 1.5. And the reason uh, we stick to 1.5 and and the 1.5 number is is a um, kind of a contentious number just because um, we fight for 1.5 because even 0.5 of a degree more, means increased loss of biodiversity means even more extreme weather events um you know means greater inequality even um you know and so we want to try to limit this as much as possible um and the reason i say that it's contentious is because 1.5 is really hard to meet at this point and with current pledges we are not set out to reach 1.5 um and that was kind of the conclusion that a lot of us came out of cop 26 with is you know was this worth it? Did this was this a failure of a COP because we're not meeting 1.5 with these current pledges? Um, but sticking to a 1.5 goal is incredibly important because, like we said earlier, it's low and middle income countries that are going to be affected the most. So it's very easy for a high income country to say, "Well, you know, why don't we just try for two degrees Celsius?" Um, because they have the funding and the means to be able to adapt to a world of two degrees. Um, You know, and it's a very short-sighted view to say that that we should be limiting warming to 2 degrees instead of 1.5 degrees, in my opinion.
3: And um, just for a little bit more context, folks, uh, we measure this 1.5 compared to a baseline of pre-industrial emissions. So that's about, you know, 1750s to 1850s. Uh, You know, we have recorded data of what the average temperature around the world was like then. uh, And we can clearly see that it's been slowly and now increasingly rising. Uh, throughout the world, so when we're talking about 1.5, we're not talking about look outside today. It's maybe negative three degrees here in Montreal. Tomorrow it might be negative five. Right? We're not talking about that kind of day-to-day difference. We're talking about a global average difference. So scientists all around the world, in Ghana, in in China, in Russia, in the U.S., in Chile, etc., they're all taking constant measurement data, trying to average out the temperature of the world. Uh, right now, the average temperature is about 14 degrees Celsius. Um, which is about 1.1 to 1.2 degrees Celsius higher than it was in pre-industrial times. And right now it's dangerous, right? We're at 1.1 degrees, and that is already dangerous. We're already seeing famines and and natural disasters on a scale that we haven't seen before. 1.5 is is, is unimaginably dangerous. It's a big, big difference because these differences aren't linear. And, you know, when we compare... 1.5 to 2 degrees, for example, that is half a degree. Human beings can't even perceive, like, I don't even know how I would perceive that difference, you know, from the temperature outside, but the difference is so vast. You know, um, I'll throw some quick facts at you folks, um, in a 1.5 degree world, about 13.8% of the population will be exposed to severe heat waves at least once every five years. You know, the type that we saw in, uh, British Columbia, for example, this summer, um, if we get to 2 degrees Celsius, this fraction of the population is 3 times larger. That's almost 40% of the global population. That's close to 2 billion people, right? And it's not just people though. In a 1.5 degree world, we're going to lose about 70% of the coral reefs in the world, without a doubt. Like there's no there's no question about it. That is that is a fact. In a 2 degree world, 99% of coral reefs are gone. All of them. All coral reefs in the world would be essentially gone. You know, you couldn't go scuba diving and seeing coral reefs because they just won't exist in a two degree world. It's just not—it's just not feasible for them to do that. Um, and when we talk about rising sea levels, sometimes it's—we can't—we don't even know because of the complexity of the climate system and how how. Water, uh, ocean currents move, and air currents as well. Uh, we just don't actually know what the feedback loops will look like uh, at such high degrees of temperature. So we might be totally off, uh, in the sense that it might be much, much worse um, than it is. But but you know, I want to take a step back and 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 mention to folks. that look, this is a lot of doom and gloom talk, you know. And I'm really not for that kind of gloom and doom talk. Uh, and I want to let you folks know that. Today, if we wanted to, if all politicians agreed, if all business leaders agreed, et cetera, we could not easily, but we could quickly decarbonize our entire industry, particularly in the global north and eventually in the global south. We have the technology available today. It's possible. We can fix climate change, you know, and we are slowly fixing climate change. But what is missing is political will and financial incentives, which is unfortunate. but, I want you folks to know it is not doom and gloom. There is hope. There is people working on this. It's around the clock. Gillette and I are working on this around the clock, trying to educate folks, uh, you know, to, to raise awareness so that people vote for for the people who prioritize the climate uh, or that people, you know, uh, it's called voting with your wallet, right? You buy things that are more sustainable, that are more resilient or will last longer, et cetera. Um, so there's hope. Things are. Glo- yeah. things will be gloomy if we don't act. But uh, there is still, there's still time, and there's still uh, opportunities to fix things.
2: This reminds to me, like there is a documentary called "Before the Flood," and it, rep- it presents um, uh, DiCaprio, who is, if I'm not mistaken, president of the Committee for the for the Nature in the UN. I don't remember exactly. Never mind. And there is an interview with an astronaut in uh, NASA, and they are discussing about that if we stop right now burning, falling fuels, then the whole globe will start becoming more cold and, like, becoming in the natural and normal levels. And this will bring us, like, to the next subject, like, there are some other ways because like it's too difficult to put all this effort like to change all these political views and ventures from one day to another. And um, there is this what we called the transportation in public sector to become like even more decarbonized to electrifying the public uh, transportation cars.
0: yeah. So when it comes to the transportation sector, and this is something that I was genuinely disappointed in with COP26 was the amount of focus on electrifying vehicle fleets um, and electrifying the the transport sector generally, um, rather than putting more focus on public transportation, for example, Um, you know, which would seem like a very common sense thing to go to is that, you know, to reduce the amount of cars on the road why don't you put people in the same car, which would be bus? No um, you know, and, and that still comes with having to electrify, electrify, electrify vehicle fleets and that we can electrify public transportation itself. Um, but a lot of COP26, in fact, most of the conversation around transportation was on um, electrifying cars that people would buy. Um, and as a result, a lot of uh, leaders in the automotive, industry were invited to have those conversations and then things like that can lead to special interest becoming involved in the decisions that are made um, for the planet and that are affecting people all over the world um, you know so so when we talk about solutions to transportation it's really 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 important um, to note that the there is not just one solution it is not just to go to electric cars entirely yes we need to move away from um, from, uh, petrol powered, um, vehicles, um, but we also need to be putting funding towards public transportation as well. And, you know, so that comes with, um, the lowest carbon (laughs) modes of transportation, which are walking and cycling, um, you know, and cities right now are built for cars around cars entirely. Um, you know, and city planning, um, is entirely focused on building these roads on, on kind of spreading out cities um, in the U S for example. Um, you know, I grew up in Miami. Uh, Miami is, you know, going to be decimated by climate change in the future. Um, and this is a city that is entirely spread out. There's no um, relatively no public transportation, you can't walk anywhere, there's no you can't cycle anywhere. Um, you know, and, and, and this is, that's just one example. It's all over the world. It's um, something that I think the automobile industry has had a lot of say in is how we plan out our cities and ensuring that people need cars to get from place to place, um, you know, which affects people of different classes differently, um, you know, because now people have to pay for their cars to get into their job, for example, um, and at least increased emissions. Um, So by allowing them into the conversation about what we do about the transportation sector, of course, we're going to come out with a solution being, let's just electrify everything. And now we'll just sell electric vehicles rather than focusing on public transport and meeting the actual needs of citizens um, who may very well prefer to be cycling to work or to be walking.
3: And, and to add on to that, if folks think that you can't get around with a bike, you're like, oh, I've got kids, oh, i got to go do groceries, oh, et cetera. Google a, a, a cargo bike. These things are awesome. They're like sturdy. They can even be electric. Uh, you know, they've got a solid frame and you can put a whole huge basket. Of, you can have two, three kids riding on it at the same time. Um, I've seen a lot of people uh, riding them here in Montreal uh, and even in the winter, like I ride my bike in minus 25 degree weather, you know, like it sucks, but it's possible. Right. And, and, and if only their, their bus system were a lot better, I'd probably be using it more. Um, no but what Ghislaine, what Ghislaine is saying is, uh, is is a big point there's too much focus on individual uh, electric vehicles and that's allowing vested interests like you know tesla uh Ford, et etc Volkswagen to play too much of a large role in the conversation saying yeah guys let's let's subsidize all these electric cars I'd like to make sure everybody has got their own electric vehicle uh whereas you know i mean i think everybody here agrees that cars suck like i hate having to wait to cross the road and, and 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 you know all so much space is devoted just so cars can drive around and you know there's where it could be like green corridors you know parks open spaces uh, spaces for the arts etc but no it's all for these damn cars um and um if we could really put a lot more focus on electrifying public transport and on getting people to very, very low carbon use uh, vehicles like cargo bikes and uh, and uh, even just making things uh, easy to access. For example, like the mayor of Paris, Miss um, Hidalgo, she uh, one of her commitments is to make Paris a 15 minute walkable city that you can get to anything that you may need, a hospital, a park, a uh, store, uh, uh, whatever, in 15 minutes. Anywhere that you live in the city, right? So that you don't need a car. There's no point in having a car because you could get everywhere you need within 15 minutes of walking. Yeah, Yeah. but those are our thoughts on on, on transport. A lot of people have very different ideas and opinions. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah, I'm sure that there are many, many different perspectives through this subject. The idea and the point that I'm keeping is that when we are like, like when we talk about electrifying the car fleet, and actually we promote even more the users to consume, like to change their cars and change it to electric car. And then again, in order to produce all of these cars, then we will waste much, much more energy. And this comes to the next subject, the energy transmission. Like in the agricultural sector, all the electricity for our cities, and which are the committed countries that they can, they have a way and they can control this energy transmission sector sector.
3: Yeah. So, so one of the big things with energy is that a couple of these sectors um, are very hard to decarbonize. Um, well, some of them are less using an energy, more in chemical processes. Sorry, I guess I'm going to attempt. Let me repeat that. If you can cut this out later, uh that would be great. Um yes. so when it energy is probably the most difficult subject when it comes to climate, right? Seventy-six percent of emissions come from energy, whether they're used in agriculture, used in our cars, used to heat our homes, etc. Uh, one of the biggest uses is our buildings, our commercial residential buildings uh that probably have pretty poor insulation, uh, have pretty poor, uh, not efficient heating or cooling, etc. Um, that is just guzzling and guzzling away energy. Um, one of the other aspects that makes, makes this topic really, really hard is that a lot of countries have a lot of fossil fuels and have a lot of vested interests in making sure that people keep using these fossil fuels, right? Um, you know, if you talk to somebody in Saudi Arabia or Russia, they'd have a much different idea than someone in Uruguay, where Uruguay has absolutely no fossil fuels. And they're like, yeah, we got to get rid of them at all, like completely quickly. But for example, uh, places like the UAE, their citizens enjoy tax, a tax-free country, right? Because a lot of the government revenue doesn't need to come from people's incomes. It comes from the oil industry, right? It's nationalized and they sell it. Um, So we've, Essentially, I mean, a lot of scientists have come to realize that cops um, and 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 these kind of treaties uh, to phase out coal and to you know make out these these carbon markets, etc. Uh, just really aren't going to cut it. They're not going to decrease the fossil fuel use as quickly as we need, particularly because none of these things are really legally binding, you know, and there's very few countries that are willing and committed to totally phase out fossil fuels. For example, the United States, um, you know, was a big champion at COP and was like, yeah, we got to decarbonize as fast as possible. Biden is like, I'm not Trump, you know, I believe in this and and this is so important and, and et cetera. And then literally a couple of days after COP finished, The Biden administration leased out the biggest ever plot uh, of 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 land uh, in the uh, in the Mexican Gulf for gas and oil drilling. Literally days after COP, you know, so it's not going to work. You know, I'm sure Biden has good intentions. I'm sure he wants to help the environment, but there are fossil fuel interests embedded in all of our politics. So something that I've seen come up a lot is a um, a Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. Now, if that rings a bell, it's because you've probably heard of a Nuclear Weapons Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, which happened during the peak of the Cold War, uh, where the United States and Russia were trying to essentially decrease the amount of nuclear weapons in the world. So they wanted to phase out completely the amount of nuclear weapons that there could be. Um, And this was a legally binding kind of agreement. So many countries are pushing for for nations, uh, sorry, not countries, many scientists and organizations uh, and prominent activists are pushing for countries to join a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, where essentially they want to do everything possible to make it legally binding that countries have to transition away from carbon intensive fuels, right? That's not completely possible for all nations, right? Uh, it really depends on how much hydropower you can have, how much nuclear power you have available right now, et cetera, because I'm sure you folks know that wind and solar are very variable and aren't able to cover the entire grid due to it, the sun not shining at night and the wind not always being blowing. Um, so you do need some sort of nuclear or hydro or fossil gas to kind of offset that. Unless somebody solves fusion, dear listeners, please solve fusion. Um, but um, so so that's so that's one big way that that folks are trying to uh, limit the use of fossil fuels. And you know, this is just me speculating, um, but uh, I really would not be surprised. Um, if at some point in the future we start seeing individual citizens uh, taking action, you know, taking matters into their hands, right? Like flying drones into uh, fossil fuel infrastructure or taking down power lines and stuff like that. I'm not advocating for anything like that. Please, uh, you know, for the record, I don't condone violence. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me. People are affected in this way, um, you know, and, and start trying to literally just destroy fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, and the last other big one that I totally truly support is the nationalization of the energy industry. Just like we nationalized um, essential services, I mean, it depends on the country, but you know, stuff like education, healthcare, water. Uh, Shelter, a lot of that stuff is nationalized, right? The government controls it because they're basic needs, right? They're basic necessities. They're stuff that citizens need. Uh, If we were to nationalize uh, the fossil fuel industries, the fossil fuel companies, uh, make them be owned by the government, then there would be no more vested interests, right? It would be like, okay, we own them. Let's try and get them to transition away from fossil fuels as quickly as possible. We can set quotas. We can stop their disinformation campaigns. We can stop their horrendous and extremely dangerous greenwashing um um and, and 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 try to really uh um grab a hold on uh, on on the situation um yeah but again these are all very very i mean some people call them radical some people call them not radical enough uh but they're far out ideas you know and i don't see many of them happening anytime soon but uh it's it's some of the only ways that i truly see us um decarbonizing our energy industry quickly enough
0: yeah kind of put that in the context of cop 26 a lot of the focus um was on uh coal specifically and phasing out coal entirely and a lot of countries um you know committed to this but you know like jp said a lot of countries backtrack after you know just talking about <laughs> about phasing out coal and then for example you know you had the united states um who didn't pull out of a pledge like that but you know um acted almost against it. Um, Poland pulled out just a few days later. And so when we talk about the energy transition, like you mentioned, it's also, you know, we have to consider the energy mix for different countries, something that's going to be different for every nation, um, especially in the fact that a lot of countries um, cannot um, transition as quickly as others. So for example, low and middle income countries um, right now are, focused more on, on using fossil fuels um, for the sake of development. Um, and then, you know, that's a major topic in development in that, you know, all these high income countries got to where they are today through the use of fossil fuels. Um, and so why shouldn't low and middle, middle income countries have the same opportunity, you know, to develop through the use of fossil fuels? However, these high income countries using fossil fuels to develop led to climate change. So obviously we can't have other countries going down the same path. Um, And that's something that's also really critical to the energy transition is that we um, ensure that this is something affordable for these countries to ensure that instead of using fossil fuels heavily to, to, um, you know, gain electricity um, in their countries, that they have access to renewable energy and that they have the funding to to, um, transition themselves to renewable energy and rely on that rather than going down the same path like that high-income countries did.
1: Thank you so much. Um, I know that this like whole conversation has brought awareness to people like me who didn't really know much um, about COP, um, and particularly COP26, and um, how we can empower youth activism and go against the huge malinformation that exists around the subject.
2: This was an amazing conversation and we hope that it helped everyone that is listening right now to understand a little bit better the importance of COP26 as well as to understand what we mean when we talk about climate finance, energy transition, new transportation techniques and so on. And of course, if you have any questions, you can ask them on the unique online community that we created for this specific episode. You can find the link in the description. But for now, I would like to say a huge thanks to Ghislaine and JB for being part of this amazing conversation yeah of course no it was,
0: it was really a pleasure to talk about this and i hope that um you know to take away for, for those listening is that it's very important to be critical of the decisions that are being made by our world leaders that are on behalf of uh the climate of the natural world of people everywhere um and that we do have the solutions, and we are ready to solve climate change. And it is so important that we have the involvement of everyone who is willing um, to really call on their leaders and and um, and on companies, and your friends and your family to do as much as they can to, to really um, commit to solving the um, climate crisis.
3: Yeah, really. Thank you, folks, for having us here. It's been a pleasure. Uh, you know, we're always willing to share our two cents and and, and get people involved. Uh, like elan said, be aware, raise your awareness, you know, educate yourself, learn about this topic and educate those around you. That is one of the best things that you can do for climate change. Um, besides from, you know, like I said, vote for the right people. You know, right now, a lot of issues matter, sure. But the issue that matters the most and should be at the top of your agenda is climate. If your preferred politician isn't putting uh, climate at the top of their agenda, you should probably be rethinking your choices. Uh, but thanks again for having us, folks. We really appreciate your time. And uh, until next time, folks, don't forget to change the world.
1: Thank you guys for listening. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We had such a great time. Make sure to leave us a review. If you want more Changemakers content, you can follow us on Instagram at Gen Ears to Rise and on Facebook at ChangemakerZ. Z.